This is Ibarian X, and welcome to The Candid Frame. Well, summer is almost over, but there's a lot to look forward to in the fall, not least of which are some great interviews here on TCF. Today is an interview that I know you're going to enjoy, and if so, I want to solicit your help in getting the word out on this episode and all the interviews we offer on the show. If you are liking what you're hearing, please take the time to share this with your friends on your social networks, be it on Twitter, Facebook, or Google+. Those mentions go a long way in helping people to discover TCF, because whether you know it or not, there are a lot of people that don't know we're here, and I think they'd love to find us. And if you haven't already written a review on the iTunes store, please take the time today. It increases our ranking, but most importantly, it helps people discover us. And of course, your donations are always welcome and appreciated. There's a link in the show notes and the website for contributions through PayPal for any amount. Such donations over the years have helped us to make the show what it is today. Several weeks ago, I released one of the most popular episodes of the year, an interview with photojournalist Arthur Grace. When I asked him the question about what photographer he would recommend listeners to discover, he recommended today's guest, Bill Pierce, who is a great photographer in his own right. Suffice it to say that if you enjoyed my interview with Arthur, you are in for a treat today, not only with respect to the stories of his own career, but also about his time under the tutelage of master photographer W. Eugene Smith. We began our conversation with talk about those early influences. Well, Wally was my neighbor, and uh, let's put it this way. INS was essentially UPI at that time. There were two big, two big news organizations. In Pittsburgh, which was where I lived, INS, or UPI was what it became, had 17 photographers. The Associated Press had one, Wally Stein, and he used to constantly and continuously beat them. He would outscoop them. He was amazing. He was an old man, right? He was not a young man at all. And there would be some plane wreck that would be 40 miles away. And in the middle of the night, he would hike through the woods and things like that to do it. And he he got me my first 4x5 speed graphic. That was what news photographers used. And he took the ground glass on it and he broke it. He just took his fist and smashed the ground glass and said, Okay, kid. When you learn to scale focus, I'll put the ground glass back. Scale focusing being, of course, just setting the measurements, uh, saying, oh, you're eight feet away and putting it on the focusing scale Mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, He was absolutely amazing. I, I got my first 35 millimeter camera and everything, and I washed cars one summer including washing cars for the local Mafia Don, which was interesting because my mother never knew why she could always park at a city-owned parking lot. She never realized it was her son's car washing (laughs) that had done it. Anyway, 
I mean, the thing is, Wally took one look at the at this little thirty five millimeter c- camera, and he said, "What's that for, kid? You're gonna put it in a courtroom? You're gonna wear it around your leg and then sneak shots <laughs> in the courtroom and everything?" And eventually, oh, and by the way, I later at the Berrigan trials in Harrisburg met the you know reigning head of the AP photographers in in uh, Pennsylvania. And he said, I remember you. He said, you were a 10-year-old kid. And he said, and I came to Wally Stein's for dinner, and you were there. And he said, the two of you were talking about technical stuff. He said, I couldn't understand a word you said. <laughs> I mean, and while, that's it. I mean, Wally was an amazing technician. Finally, he retired. I think his wife was very, very glad that he retired. Because, you know, it was exhausting being the one guy at AP who was scooping the 17 guys at UPI and things like that. And so they retired and they went out west uh, somewhere to live. I don't even remember. And I, I met a friend, a mutual friend of Wally's and mine later. And I said, well, how is retirement going for Wally and everything? And he said, well, his wife is a little upset. And I said, why? He said, oh, well, he got a job. He's working as a rodeo clown. (laughs) But needless to say, I mean, Wally was an incredible influence. I mean, he took um, a kid who liked to take pictures and taught him what it was like to really take pictures. I mean, yeah, he was a huge, huge, huge uh, initial influence. Besides what you learned about photography from him. What did you learn about, you know, being tenacious, being assertive, being aggressive in order to get the shot? Because that's one of the reasons why he scooped everyone else. And it wasn't, it wasn't rooted in what he knew about like a camera or taking pictures. It was so much about him, you know, making choices that other guys weren't making. What what did you learn from him in that respect that really helped you in your career as a photojournalist? Well, one that it was an, it was a, it was a necessity. But then again, remember, we were all hobbyists. We loved what we were doing. So as far as having the enthusiasm and the drive, that was that was not any problem. You didn't make any money as a photojournalist or anything. I mean, and what you tried to do was just have as much fun as possible. Now, what, what working with Wally did was, first of all, you saw it was essential, but there wasn't anybody in the racket who didn't have it. It was a stupid racket unless you loved what you were doing. <laughs> what you found out was that each person, each person had their way of dealing with the subject. Um, I mean, for instance, like Eddie Adams. Eddie used to, you know, impress people with, you know, how important Eddie was. You're being honored to be photographed by Eddie Adams and everything. Um, I, I don't know what I did. You find within your own personality how to engage the person. Um, the only thing I could say about my particular style, I was fascinated by the people. I was fascinated by what I was was photographing. There was absolutely no problem in being involved and really entering into conversations 
with the people. I mean, you're doing the headshot of an important person. What does that take? Well, that's about three minutes, you know, but both of you now have an excuse to go off and have lunch together and talk. And besides, when you're doing a headshot, if you talk a lot, and you may have noticed I talk a lot, it keeps people from talking back so that you don't get all those shots where the person's mouth is open. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I really don't know what we do. I know that we all do it in our own way. And I know that for anybody who's involved in news photography, the, the reason that you do it is your involvement with incredible human beings, a small, small percentage of them actually become your friends and everything, and amazing events. To go to China, I mean, I was there for Tiananmen Square, but I had been there 20 years earlier when outside of Beijing, they were trying to wipe the white off of my face. Mm. You know, they, they had, you know, they had never seen somebody who, who was not Chinese and everything. I began to talk to government officials and everything who rose in the ranks. And by the time Tiananmen Square came around, I was talking to guys in the government who actively opposed what was happening to the students. I mean, engaging in real conversations with people of real power and insight, telling me things that I would never have known, you know, without that. I mean, I guess what it comes down to is this. I think that for a lot of us, you know, sort of these enthusiastic hobbyists who decided that we would would earn our living with photography. Um, those of us who did it as journalists, somebody says, oh, that picture is remarkable. You think the picture was remarkable? You should have been there. Wow. That's not, I mean, in other words, the journalistic pictures. Sure, yeah. They're, they're, they're important. They're, they're bringing information to people that they wouldn't have. Um, they're bringing your opinion. Don't kid yourself. You select the moment and everything. But the events and the people themselves, I didn't look at the picture. I saw the real thing. Then when you come home and you're old and, uh, you know, every journalist is either, look... Eventually, you cover wars. You do all kinds of things. And you get hurt or you get killed. I mean, our prayer was always, always. Then this sounds really weird. Guys wanted to be killed, no pain. They didn't want to come back maimed. I mean, now this country is beginning to realize, you know, what that is like because they see our own young soldiers coming back. And, um, you know, they begin to know what it's like to carry those emotional and physical wounds for the rest of their life. So war photographers and, and photographers who do news, a great deal of it out of the country and things like that, you eventually retire. Your doctor says you can't do it anymore. You know, if they take away your pills, you are in bad shape. 
And so you go to another kind of photography. It pays less. It's called art. <laughs> and what you do is you go out and you annoy perfectly nice people on the streets with your little camera. And the pictures are put in bigger frames. And because you're very old, if you print the pictures and sign them, there's a real chance that you'll be dead and it will be a limited edition in a relatively short time, and so important gallery owners will pick you up. So you become from news photographer to artist. Artist is fun. It's a lot of fun, but it doesn't pay as much, and journalism doesn't pay that much. God, this may have been a truly pathetic life. I have no <laughs> idea. You make an interesting point. I mean, photojournalists have never really made a whole lot of money. But they're out there taking risks, putting their lives at stake. And and sometimes I wonder, you know, why is that? I mean, there's always that, you know, the idea that they're there because they want to make a difference. They want to tell us, you know, well, this is a story to get out there. They want to reveal something that they feel that other otherwise would be uh, glossed over or obfuscated, but when when you're seeing your friends get injured or killed, and you are, and you're in a situation where you lose your own life, I wonder how much altruism has to do with staying there and and especially going back over and over again. Um, what what drove you to um, make that choice to put yourselves in, in, you know, um, to go to Syria, to go to China, to go to, you know, places where you were going to take the risk of getting injured or killed. Why? Well, one, to get out of the office. <laughs> and the, the other thing is, you know, you feel like you're doing something important. You feel like you're doing something of worth. If you stay in the office, some researcher will turn to you and say, look, I need a picture of a box of dishwasher detergent. Could you go down to the store, buy some dishwasher detergent, and photograph it for me? You know, the fact is that I don't think anybody understands what, you know, what, what happens. It, I mean, the war thing in particular... Look, um, it, it doesn't take a lot of bravery and everything. You go crazy. In other words, you adjust to the insane asylum. And you see that in the kids coming back today and everything. I mean, everybody talks about their emotional problems. Their emotional problems are what kept them alive when they were in an insane asylum. In other words, war is insane. And to survive, you become one of the inmates of the asylum. It is not a set of... Ha and by the way, by the standards of the war zone, you are completely sane. By these standards, you're hyper alert, nervous, aggressive, and everything when you come back. I think the danger, of course, is that you lose your fear. In other words, this is the way the world is. People are shooting at you. You don't think about it and everything. When I got older, sometimes I would have to run the show and everything and take care of other photographers. And if I saw them getting used to the situation, I would send them on a vacation. 
And I wasn't sending them on a vacation because I was a nice guy. I mean, they thought I was a nice guy, and I said, yes, sure, I'm a nice guy, and things like that. But I was sending them away so that they would get their fear back. I just wanted them to be afraid because then they would be careful. And believe you me, you spend enough time in these places, and it just becomes totally normal and everything. I mean, as I say, to an extent, we see it in in the young kids, the soldiers, um, coming back today and everything. I know, um, oddly enough, you're, you know, you have a military status if you're around a military unit. It's just for, for billeting. It's, you know, where you sleep or where you get your meals or anything. Most of the journalists are made colonels. Uh, I was made a colonel, actually, I think, because the, the Marines were embarrassed to have somebody wearing a Hawaiian sports shirt sitting next <laughs> to them in the trenches uh, and everything. It was better, like, uh, either uh, he's crazy or we're crazy or we should make him a Marine or something, and that would work out. And when I came back, I would lecture the um, Marines about how to deal with journalism. And it was very, very simple. It was called Tell the Truth. But the problem that they had was some kid came back, and he went back to his base, and he killed somebody. He went nuts. And you can understand why the base commander at times might say, oh, my God, we can't let this out. This is terrible. Yeah. It is terrible. My advice was always, look out. The pros are going to find out. They're going to know. It's going to take them about half a day to find out what really happened. So come forward and tell the truth. Say some kid came back and his brain had been beaten and beaten and beaten and beaten. And he did an awful thing. And when we find out more about it, we'll tell you more about it. Mm. Just be honest. One of the other influences on you was um, W. Eugene Smith. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you named your son after Absolutely, Eugene. absolutely. Uh, tell us about how you met him and what that early relationship was like. Um, well, let's see. I was a, um, a young actor and light designer in New York, and I was attending an acting school with Sandy Meisner, uh, and if you think that's weird, I had been a physics major at Princeton. So from <laughs> you covered a lot of ground. Physics <laughs> major at Princeton to unemployed, rather bad <laughs> actor. You know, the actor who's still on the stage of waving his hands around <laughs> a lot. Um, but the the thing is, um, uh, Eve Young, uh, who was the wife of David Young, an artist who had a loft in the same building as Jean. Um, said, oh, I know a kid that has a dark room, and he can help Gene make contact prints. And so what happened was Gene asked me to make some contact prints and everything. And it was a sort of a competition. Gene was a big deal. He was probably the single most important photojournalist in the business in his day. And um, I went up against a young kid who made contact sheets and bleached and burned and dodged every single one of them. So I lost out. I lost the competition. For for guys who only use digital, what a contact sheet was is you used to cut your film into strips, lay it down on a sheet of photographic paper, and 
make a contact print, expose that to light, and you would have one sheet of paper and would have 36 little postage stamp frames, and that was sort of a proof. You could select and look at your prints in a, your, your frames in a positive sense. It was the beginning step of editing and printing and everything. Now, of course, we do it on a computer, and that doesn't exist anymore. What happened anyway was that I went up to Jean's and turned, sort of turned into his gal Friday. I mean, it was, as in all things journalism, a job without pay. But um, it was an incredible, incredible, incredible education. I mean, I did all kinds of things like go down early in the morning and say to tons of fans who were accumulating at his front door, uh, no, Mr. Smith is not available today. He has to work, but he apologizes for not being able to visit with you. To arranging with Romeo Martinez to come down and, and do the famous disappearing two-volume book that was Gene's major contribution, which disappeared. I'm pres the, uh, One of those copies was found and is now available as a book, but it's the faded proof book, and they did oh. it as faded proofs. Somewhere Romeo Martinez's estate, somewhere in, in Switzerland, has the other copy and everything. But what people don't realize is that book was a book of proofs in no way in no way does it represent what Gene wished the images to be. The other thing I used to, I used to do things like go find other people who would be willing to work for Gene for free. You know, when he got involved in projects, sometimes I would have, you know, 10 or 15 acting students and things like that uh, working at Gene's loft for him and everything. It was... Uh, I, I must say, I introduced him to two of his girlfriends. They came to work and uh, stayed to embrace. <laughs> well, as, as, we, as you mentioned before we started recording, there's a, there's a certain myth around Gene. Um, he was a force of personality as, as much as he was a great photographer. But when oh, you were, yeah. But when you, when you were spending time with him one-on-one, -on -one, what, what impression did you get from him as... Not just an artist, but just as a as a human being, as a person. Um, the very, very opposite of uh, of the public image. Somebody who, when it was just you and him in an empty room, was quiet, shy, self deprecating, helpful, kind. I mean, look. Gene Smith was a great photographer. I was a young kid. Um, we measured our success on who improved the most that week. Since I had a hell of a lot more room to improve, I won an awful lot of those weekly contests. And, for instance... 
uh, at one time we were discussing one of his pictures. And it's a relatively famous picture, but I thought at times Gene tipped into the melodramatic rather than the, the dramatic. And it, it, you know, it, it affected the believability of the image. And I said that I didn't like the picture. And Gene cried. And his comment was, but everybody else does. Mm. So it was a very, very, very different Gene Smith than the sort of dramatic um, public figure and everything. Um, there was a book written about Gene, and it was written by a gentleman who had also edited a lot of my writing and things like that. And I refused to be interviewed because I thought he was making, you know, a a melodramatic, trumped-up version of Gene. And um, but that, of course, is what sold. That's what interested people, you know, and things like that. And so it's amazing until Gene sort of got sort of revised and everything. I I was never associated with the Gene Smith history. And we were very close, and we spent a lot of time together and everything. But, you know, I got two or three mentions in the book, and that was it, stay away from this kid. Then when they started exhibiting Gene's work, you know, and things like that, and things got re-researched, suddenly I went to one exhibit of, of Gene's work. And uh, in addition to the pictures there were recordings that had been made in the, the loft at 821 6th Avenue. Gene recorded everything, um, the music, the conversations, and everything. And we walked over to a wall and punched the button. Most of the time, you would hear jazz music. There were several recorders. And suddenly, it was a whole series of conversations with Gene and me. Anyway, fortunately, the more discreet ones. <laughs> yeah. Gene's prints were a phenomenal revelation to me. Yeah, yeah. Because when I, it's one thing to take a look at his pictures in a book or in a magazine. Yeah. But when you see the prints and you see the choices that he made, it was just remarkable. Because even now, I don't see people making those kind of choices. Him and Roy Decarava, yes, uh, yes, uh, really took printing to an area that I see very few people uh, do, and you know. Gene, in a very different, in, in a similar way, but in a very different way than Ansel, Ansel Adams, understood that the print was the means by which he could communicate his vision um, as a photographer, not just merely snapping, yeah. snapping yeah. The, the, the photo. What, what did you learn about not just the technique of making a print, but that whole, the, the art of what a print should and can be? Okay, well, now look, it's interesting. Because I've never seen any of your prints, but I have seen them on the web. I mean, I guess that is today's print, to see your pictures on the web. And this is going to sound weird, but you have instinctively done the same thing that Gene Smith did. Taking the picture, pushing the button, that's not all of the photograph. Eventually, this is going to exist on a computer screen or on a piece of paper. And making that image 
onto the piece of paper, onto the, to the computer screen. That is a hugely important step. If you don't want the credit line on the picture to read photo by Canon or photo by mm. Fuji X-Pro or something like that, what you're going to do and what Gene did is very, very, very simple. You are going to emphasize the important and de-emphasize, not eliminate, de-emphasize the less important. In the simplest terms, you're probably going to make the important area of the subject. I mean, you're out there, you know, you're shooting a mess. You know, what's in front of you is this complex, disorganized thing, and you press the button. And what you have is a picture that has something important, quite often surrounded by a complete visual mess. And you simply want to guide people through that mess that is the real world to what you think is important, to your vision. So you take that little part of the picture, maybe the human face, maybe the person on the street, who knows what it is. You make it a little brighter, a little contrastier. You take the other elements in the picture, you might make them a little darker, a little lower in contrast, things like that. You are simply trying to guide people through this complex mess that is the world when you point a camera at it and saying, in that mess, look first at this. And oh, look at these nice sort of surrounding things. But they're surrounding things. They're backgrounds. This is important. This is what it was set against. But I, I don't know. Does that make any sense? No, it makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. But you have done it instinctively, you know, with your work. Um, to me, unless you are preparing the image in some way, it, it simply is not your photograph. Now, this sounds terrible coming from a news photographer, you know. But essentially, you know, I once had an editor say, is, all the time they would say, is, is this objective? Hmm. No, and it's not subjective either. I mean, I chose when to push the button, and believe you me, that's big and subjective and everything, but, but you have your opinion. However, guess what? I don't want you to have your opinion. I want you yeah. to have my opinion, and I'm going to guide you with the print towards my opinion of what is important. Now, as a news photographer, I'm not going to do things that are amazingly strange. Uh, you know, I mean, for instance, like, of all the people that I photographed, you know, of, of, who, who have photographed with me and who have photographed combat areas, there is not a single one of them who has ever said, war is really good fun, war is jolly, let's have more wars. I mean, the statement that absolutely all of us make is, don't do this. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's not like our, pers our personal opinions are a big deal. When you're doing news, 
your personal opinion usually agrees with almost everybody else, but you are guiding people through a mess. That's all. Getting back to this idea of being a photojournalist, there's one of the things is I think most photojournalists hope for is that their stories will somehow make a difference. And one of those stories that had a huge impact was the uh, was your were the images you produced at the Willowbrook Mental Institution. Um, and I was hoping you could tell us uh, about that story and uh, the circumstances under which you made those images and the impact that they had. Well, um, oddly enough, the people who gave uh, Peter Stoller, who was the reporter, the writer on the story and myself, the, the lead about the bad conditions at Willowbrook came from the doctors at Willowbrook. They themselves wanted the, you know, the conditions improved. They knew that Time magazine, I guess they had heard, or maybe they hadn't heard, maybe it just happened spontaneously, that Peter and I were doing a story on mental illness, you know, and things like that. And they got in touch with us, and they snuck us in to Willowbrook and everything. Um, I had one camera, a Leica with a 35-millimeter lens, under my jacket, and the doctors and the nurses essentially, and they're actually, they're not nurses, they're just attendants, very hardworking people dealing with uh, people with a range of mental disabilities. I mean, they simply snuck us in and left us alone, and we photographed. The entire Willowbrook story was probably done in about 45 minutes and everything, and um, it was... An amazing thing. I mean, there were people who were essentially almost slumbering vegetables. Their their mental disabilities were so great. There were on the on the other spectrum people who maybe had the intelligence of a ten year old, but were fifty years old. But I want to tell you, a fifty year old, ten year old, is a very wise ten year old. I talked with with uh, with one of the guys, and uh, he said, "Where are you from?" And I said, "Time Magazine." And he said, "Oh yes." He said, "I've seen." It. He said, "I don't I don't read it." He said, uh, "But he said it's very 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 interesting uh, what what is happening on the outside world these days." He said, "You know, they're trying to get a lot of us employment and everything, but I see that uh, that there's real unemployment." for people without disabilities and it seems a little unfair that they should be you know employing us you know when people who do not live in an institution need a job this is coming from somebody who is mentally retarded Mm -hmm. i mean it was absolutely a mind-blowing experience and of course what happened was when the story was released and appeared in time magazine It, it created a lot of stir and everything. And uh, Geraldo Rivera, who, for instance, at that time was Jerry Rivers, the weather reporter on the local ABC channel, uh, saw it. He immediately jumped on. You know, he was becoming Geraldo Rivera. He was becoming the tabloid-style reporter. Oh, the horror. Oh, the tragedy. Oh, these mistreated people. Completely got the story wrong. Uh, but of course, completely took credit for breaking it and everything. 
and um, got the story so wrong he had to apologize a day or so later and everything. But the, you know, I, I don't know. What, what can I say? I think, in a sense, the story backfired. It, it was certainly one of the things that brought a great deal of attention uh, to the care of the mentally retarded. And as you know, institutions like Willowbrook were disbanded. And you had smaller homes with two or three people, or 10 or 12, or 15 or 20, but much smaller institutions. And somehow that didn't work. You know, I mean, it would have been wonderful if it did. But as you know now, uh, the unattended mentally ill in New York City, which is essentially the the area that Willowbrook served, um, now are put in jails. And um, so I, I can't say that, and, and by the way, just as a side note, um, when this story about Willowbrook came out, and it, and it certainly did talk about the bad conditions, the understaffing, and, and the under-budgeting, because this is exactly why the Willowbrook doctors had brought us in, so that there would be public pressure. The applications that families made to have their children put into Willowbrook zoomed up. It became monumental. The minute they found out that Willowbrook existed, they wanted to put their kids in it because they were unequipped to handle their children and everything. So I wish I could say that the the story attempted, this story did attempt, and, and, and it did bring some attention to the problem of mental illness. But the problem still looms, and uh, of course, in a sense, looms more greatly than it did when we did the story. Yeah, I, I grew up sort of trained uh, to always be respectful of authority. Yeah. And I think that as one of the good things, the great things about this country is that we have journalists, writers, and photographers, and reporters who, uh, whose, whose job it is is to question authority because oftentimes uh, they may not be making the best decision that they, they should be. And it's a responsible responsibility of any democracy to have people who, yeah. who do that. And in, in your role as a photojournalist, you got to see, you know, uh, people in authority, politicians, uh, bureaucrats, both here and outside of the U.S., mm-hmm. uh, have a perspective that very few of us had. And I wonder, I wonder, what what perspective did you ha- have or, or, or develop about such people? Because of the unique view that you had, did it make you cynical? Did it, did it encourage you? Did, was it a mixed bag, depending on who you were sort of dealing with? What, you know, after so many years of, of telling so many stories, you know, what does it leave you thinking about, about such people? Well, um, you know, obviously it's mixed and everything. I mean, for instance, um, I went down to Washington. Uh, they sent me down at the time that Nixon was resigning. I, th- I think they were understaffed, and and also they wanted somebody who didn't have the the perspective of uh, you know a White House photographer and things, uh, which 
the Nixon entourage certainly branded me as somebody not having that perspective. Um, I believe the last words that they said as I left to photograph the demonstrations um, outside the anti-Nixon was, you will not be able to photograph the president's resignation speech tomorrow. If you leave, you cannot come back. So, of course, I was demoted to the backyard. The pictures of Nixon's speech, of course, never really went anywhere and everything. But that picture of him flashing the two Vs, mm -hmm. I want to tell you that's been supporting the Pierce family for a long time. <laughs> so getting sent to the backyard wasn't too bad. But, I mean, the thing I found out about, for instance, politicians was a lot of them are not people that I would want in office you know, running my government. But I'm not quite sure why. I think it may be the pressure of having to constantly campaign. The first thing you do when you're elected is start your re-election campaign. And even the best of politicians have to do that. Now, I will say that within that group of people, there, I believe they are in the minority, but I believe there are some people who are the most remarkable, intelligent, giving people. I mean, there is no question that they are doing good things for their country and probably doing it at, at some personal sacrifice. Hubert Humphrey when he was vice president and, and, and therefore leading Congress, once stayed to resolve a debate and keep Congress open while his son, one of his sons, had become seriously ill and moved to a hospital. He never said one thing about it. He was a remarkable man. I remember going out once. He was campaigning, as they all do, and he'd gone back to his home state. He had been a pharmacist, I believe, but um, it was a farm state. And so he was, you know, he was at a country fair and everything. Now, as you know, every animal, uh, in terms of farmer, has a special name. You know, that's not a bull if it's had its testicles removed, it's given some other name. Uh, you know, that's not a horse, it's a whatever. It's, mm -hmm. They all have special names. And, you know, he's not a farmer. He doesn't know what these names are. But it's very, very important that he seems knowledgeable. So he would, you know, go up to a farmer, and the farmer would be showing his cow and everything. And I would think, oh, my God, you know, what is Mr. Humphrey going to do? And he would look at the farmer, and he would look at the cow, and he would say, magnificent beast, magnificent beast. And I suddenly realized, you know, and he would go to a horse, magnificent beast, magnificent beast. So we're going down the line, and suddenly there are chickens. And I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> this isn't going to work, you know. Could look at a chicken and say, magnificent beast? Henry, he pulled it off. He looked at the chicken and he said, magnificent fowl, magnificent <laughs> fowl. You know, I, I remember once 
Imagine being driven to a photographer's birthday party by the President of the United States. I was in Limo 1, or whatever you would call it, with uh, Gerald Ford, who I thought was an absolutely remarkable man. I mean, I really thought he was a very, very, very good president. And, you know, I, I said to him, Mr. President, this is absolutely amazing. I am being driven to a birthday party by the most important man in the Western Hemisphere. And he turned to me and he said, don't tell Henry you said that. He thinks he is. <laughs> At that time, I had very, very long hair. And I remember, you know, Time and Newsweek and all the papers. We'd have little specials where we'd be the only person photographing the president in, in some situation. And you would wait in the, you know, in the Oval Office, and there would be the president and you and a Secret Service man, uh, you know, kind of glomming you in case you turned out to be evil and everything. And I, I said once to the 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 president mr president you know if this if you feel this long hair is inappropriate i would be glad to have it cut and president ford looked up at me and said bill i am the president of the united states i have more important things to think about than the length of your hair <laughs> nonetheless the next day one of his assistants came and said look you know how it is. When we're on a trip, all the photographers and the important people are waiting for Air Force One, and they think that the first person that will step off is the President of the United States. But it isn't. It's the pool photographers, and they all run down the steps and stand at the bottom to photograph the President as he comes out. So he said the appearance of those seven photographers, he said, is, is, is rather important. And he said, we, we have arranged a group that looks good. We have a Sephardic Jew. We have an Oriental. We have a black. We have, and he's just going down the list. And he said, and we have a long-haired freak. <laughs> and he said, you can get a haircut, but you may be off the plane. <laughs> you covered a lot of stuff more than we have time for, but... Um... What what do you feel was the most challenging and the most gratifying story that you've ever had the opportunity to document? Oh, the wars, the wars. It doesn't doesn't matter if you're a big deal time dude that's getting kind of weird awards because his editors are beating the heads of the contest judges, or you know you're some guy who's brave enough to do that and he's working for a little paper or something. It's the it's. It's the volume of all of us saying, don't do this. You know, they're not great pictures. You know, it's, it's just important. I don't know. It's that they all be there. It'd be that, that there'd be this huge chorus of voices, some of them operatic, some of them little squeaky voices, saying, 
don't do this. You know, it's just that simple. Um, I don't think any of our great photographs, you know, come from that. Um, that's great in the California sense of the word, where you can actually have a hamburger that's great, mm -hmm. and not in the music sense in which only Mozart is great. But, you know, you have all these great photographs. They're not your war photographs. You know, that's... You, you don't... I mean, we're at my home now, and you look around on the walls, and there are pictures from my friends and pictures that I've taken, and you, you see no war pictures here and everything. It's the combined onslaught of thousands of people saying, don't do this. You know, I mean, it's not that we're important or this picture is important. It's that the huge message is important. I mean, look, Eddie Adams' picture of Luan blowing the head off the Viet Cong was in some ways a curse and everything. I mean, Ed was a dear friend, very close friend. And uh, he alternated between not wanting to talk about it and talking about it. But it turned a very, 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 very good photographer into a one-picture photographer. Um, and that was awful. Um, there's been a lot of comment recently on the internet about Ken Jureski's um, picture of the burned soldier in the first uh, yeah. Iran war and everything. Uh, Ken, once again, an old friend. And uh, thanks to the Army Signal Corps in contact with me, a lot of the days that he was, he was over there taking those pictures. I think that he had done Northern Ireland, but I think... This was his first shoot him out. You better get down and duck occasionally war. And uh, the first time we saw that picture, it was, we were walking together in the village in New York, and it was being used as a poster for a rock and roll group from England. Oh. The picture was never shown here as a news picture in America because it was too horrible. Uh, that was the editor's choice. Both Associated Press and Time Incorporated made the choice not to show this picture because it was too horrible. Uh, now you know why I hold some editors in contempt. And it was considered by Harold Evans, who was working in Europe at the time and is now Sir Harold Evans, to be the finest picture of the war. But did it take a toll, um, you know, that conflict, having it released as a, as a good picture in a photo magazine months later? That's how it hit America, things like that. Yeah, it's it's complicated. It's 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 never about the single picture. It's about the chorus of voices saying don't do this. Yeah. Well, my my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone. Uh, it can be someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Well, be the, why not the last one I mentioned, Ken Jureski. Here is a guy 
who was the hot young photographer in photojournalism. Of course, right now there is no photojournalism unless you're doing celebrity images and everything. He, so he's in Montana selling prints, trying to survive. Like, you know, I mean, look, I got out because I retired. You know, I mean, I'm set. The guys who were younger than me have a really hard time because their profession has been taken away from them. They have the job that they had doesn't exist anymore. By the way, Kenneth is also a champion rodeo rider and everything. Uh, Maybe that's one reason he's in Montana. There they have a rodeo each year, which is just for the guys themselves. It's not a big audience thing. And they, they, they become, they compete among themselves. And he's been the champion twice. He's so big that he has to have a very large horse or the horse just caves in <laughs> under covering <laughs> Jureski. But this, this man is one of the truly, truly, truly good photojournalists in the racket. But he is of the generation that literally watched their profession disappear. And so I would say, interview him. He is an important voice in an important group of people and probably more important he is one of the most amazing photographers you could imagine. He is just an exceptional photographer. So, yeah. Awesome. Interview Kenneth. And where can people go to find out more about you and, and your work? Um, oh, God. Uh, and I hoped I could hide. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. There's a website that's always in disarray called something like... Uh, uh, BillPiercePictures.com. Okay. You know, but it's a constant mess because museums are always saying, could you just all put this in one big pile and everything? So what happens is you get these slideshows and you're stuck for 20 minutes looking at this stuff. So I wish you, I wish you well, but I don't recommend it. <laughs> well, I'll have links to that and probably other, some, some other resources on the web. But Bill, thank you so much. It was a joy. My great pleasure, truly. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the show. Remember that my latest book, Portraits of Strangers, is available for purchase. And for loyal listeners of the show, you can enjoy 30% off the ebook or any other book or DVD that I've produced, including my first book, Chasing the Light Improving Your Photography Using Available Light. Click on the link on the show notes and use the promo code PORELLO, that's P as in Paul, E-R-E-L-L-O, to receive your discount. The Candid Frame is brought to you by the generous contributions of listeners just like you, as well as the work of our audio engineer, Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is the candid frame.